Uh, what I want to do is really uh, begin to land the plane. Obviously, um, this is beginning a conversation. Um, tomorrow, we're going to go into uh, a significant amount of the hows, and John Mark's going to take us through most of the day if you're around tomorrow. But what I want to do is just get end some thoughts for leaders, particularly as we come to the end of that cycle of the end of a deconstructive moment and um, heading into a rebuilding moment. I gave a lot of my ministry life to trying to start a renewal movement in a deconstructive posture. And it does not work. Steve Addison, who now lives in London but lived in Blackburn, uh, the author in his study of movements said that all movements begin with white-hot faith. That is an irrevocable rule of how to actually create something new. And so the sense of what God does is that when you reach the end of... I'll put this here, so that's deconstructive. So I'm not even going to go back to... If you can imagine, above that is all of the different stages. And then you're in... Let's call it the desert. So we're going to begin here. One of the things to realize is that when you're in a desert, when you're in that end of a moment, is that it feels incredibly dislocating. It feels like something's wrong. But the first thing to realize is the blessing of the wilderness. One of the passages that has been read a lot, I think at the end of this period of what I call relevance, there was this period, I guess about five years ago, when it was almost like, Christians now, if we just be cool enough, and we're just culturally savvy enough, and engaged, if we take the right tone, we can become, uh, you know, any element of society. We can find ourselves in it. We can have, like, you know, guys who are in Hollywood making movies. We can be in that rock band. You can do this. All those areas which Christians felt like they were excluded from, from that sort of rise of fundamentalist Christianity in the sort of 1930s and 40s. And then it was almost all gone. And so from that point till about five years ago, I think that people often read the passage I'm about to read, and it was almost read in a wrong way. And so if you have got your Bibles, I'm going to get you to open Jeremiah 29. And Jeremiah 29, verse 4, is Jeremiah's letters to the exile. So what's happened here, the background is that Israel has been continually disobedient. And Babylon, which is the superpower of the day, comes in, takes the best and the brightest from Israel and Judah to Babylon. And so there's this generation growing up in Babylon, which is like this big, it's the cool city of the time. It's got hanging gardens. And, um, and this has been read in a particular way. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the exegesis, how I think it's been read, but I'm going to do it wrong, and then we'll do it right. So this is when you're in a Portland with great coffee and, and awesome hiking, when you're in a Melbourne, you're in Australia, which has got like, what, you know, something like six of the world's most liberal cities in the top ten. You can read this verse in a particular way. This is what the Lord's Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
So we're Christians today and we don't exactly fit in, but have you seen our jeans? Like, they're cool. We can be cool. And our worship music now is, is just world class and we've got cool bands who like transition from worship music and, and we've got cool people in all different industries. So we're pretty cool. So how do we live in this moment? Oh, okay, verse 5 goes on. Jeremiah says to us in this exile with amazing coffee, this exile with uh, some really beautiful homes, this exile with, like, you can download any movie you want, um, this exile where we have to suffer from fantastic sushi, build houses on it, settle down, I'm doing that, plant gardens, have you seen my, my, my permaculture garden, like, it's awesome, eat what they produce, oh, I will eat local, organic, <laughs> like, yeah. Marry and have sons and daughters. Yep, doing that. Your daughter's in marriage, so they may to have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. Well, our church is growing because we are so relevant. Uh, also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Absolutely. We love Melbourne. We love Brisbane. We love Hobart. We love Portland. We love wherever we are. We love these places. They're so wonderful. Of course, we're going to seek the peace and prosperity, which means to going to all on the food trail and going to all the best restaurants, going to the grand final, doing whatever you want, going to that concert. Thank you, God. For if the city prospers, you too will prosper. Magic. I'm liking this exile. Like, this exile sounds better than being in the promised land with God, to be honest. Now, that's in a sense, I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but that's almost how it's been read. I've actually heard it exegeted like that. What we need to realize is what comes before and what comes afterwards. In chapter 27, I'm not going to go through all of this. Israel has been overcome by a superpower. This is a foreign army has come in. And these guys have got a powerful, powerful military. This is if Australia just went into Fiji and just took over that joint militarily. And what is fascinating is that Israel has continually been told that they're the called people of God and they're surrounded by the Goyim, the nations. Now, the word Goyim, I saw recently on Twitter some Jewish guys talking, these sort of guys are in the media, and they said to each other, who eats Russian dressing anymore? Which is like a type of Jewish dressing that you have in certain sandwiches, like a Reuben sandwich. And one guy replied, only the Goyim. Now, that's like only the Goyim. Now, the Goyim has a scent of disdain. The nations are not good. It's almost said with a, a desultory sting on the tongue. So the Goyim, they don't follow God. They're pagans. They're violent. They're murderous. They're powerful. They're everything that Jews are not meant to be. And Israel, who has wanted a king, wanted that power, has found itself overrun by the Goyim. Now, I'm just going to read from verse 4. That cycle has been going on, by the way. Israel is in that judges cycle. So 27 verse 4. Give them a message for their masters and say, This is what the Lord Almighty God of Israel says. Tell this to your masters. With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and animals that are on it, and I will give it to anyone I please. Now I will give all of your countries into the hands of pagan, goyim, 
or idolatrous, filthy, pagan Nebuchadnezzar. No. I will give all of your countries into the hands of my servant. My servant. God's Yahweh's servant. Yahweh's tool. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. I'll make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. If, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar or bow its neck under his yoke, I will punish that nation with the sword, famine, and plague, declares the Lord, until I destroy it by his hand. So these foreign powers come in. He then takes the best and brightest to Babylon. Now what the popular leaders, like in chapter 28, Hananiah is telling people, the prophets of Israel who are false are saying, we do not have to live in exile very long. This is going to be quick. Because the wilderness, exile is totally uncomfortable. It is so uncomfortable to be in a foreign land when you're not surrounded by Jews. They're not eating kosher. They do not practice Sabbath. They do not practice Passover. They do not understand what you're doing. The Jewish laws around sexuality are totally opposed to the Babylonian sexual code, which is central to their worship of fertility, of actually temple prostitution. So they think you're wrong on sex. They think you're wrong on worship. They think you're wrong on Sabbath. They think you're wrong on everything. So it actually is horrible being here. We don't fit in. We are misunderstood, reviled, and we do not fit in. This is not cool coffee and, hey, I'm just going to keep quiet about my faith and just go to my little Christian community over here and enjoy exile. This is a place which is incredibly uncomfortable. Now, what's really interesting about the exile is what actually happens is, and this is a different way to look at exile, is Israel is so corrupted because it's come to the end of this cycle that destruction and chaos are now here. And Israel is so corrupted because it's had a deconstructive generation just blow everything up that it's actually going to give to the goyim, care of the remnant. The remnant will live in the bosom of Nebuchadnezzar because he's better than the deconstructive generation in Israel at this time. And even the stuff in the temple, the, the temple artifacts which represent the presence of God, how humans communicate with God before Christ comes, I'm even going to give them to Nebuchadnezzar. I'd always read that as like Nebuchadnezzar comes in, the goyim trash the temple. No, God's like, I'm going to give this to my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, who I'm bringing the whole world under his yoke. And so God's plan involves exile. And what happens in exile is Nebuchadnezzar is an empire. And empires are different. Peter Lightheart says that you've got to, there's been a tendency in Christian culture of late um, to just talk about empire as a solitary thing. Empires are actually different. There's empires which allow freedom of religion and expression, and Nebuchadnezzar is like this at this time. There's other empires which are like, no, you must think like this. The West has gone from, it's imperial, but it's like, yep, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, believe what you want. It's now moving into a you-must-think-like-this stage. 
That's what's happening in the background here. That's what's causing a lot of the global tensions. So, the people of God find themselves, all of the popular prophets of the day are saying, Exalt, this is only going to be a few weeks, guys. Do not unpack your bags. Keep your Qantas card ready. Like, we're heading to the airport any minute now, and we're going to go back to Judah, going back to Jerusalem. It's all good. Don't unpack your bags. Do not marry your kids off, because you could be back in Judah and not even near that Jewish family. Get ready, because this is so uncomfortable. We don't want to be here. They don't get us. Don't unpack your bags. Don't accept the discipline of exile. Jeremiah, the unpopular yet truthful prophet, then says, exile may be painful. These goyim do not understand our ways. Yet you have to trust that God is doing something bizarre because we have gotten to the end of a deconstructive, everything's blown up, it's just desert, it's sparse, but God wants to do something new. And you're in the bosom of Nebuchadnezzar now, and God will grow you just as God spoke to Jonah in the belly of the beast. So this is what the Lord Almighty says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem. Build houses and settle down. Plant guns, eat what they produce. Marry your kids off. Find wives for your sons and your daughters. Increase in number. Don't give up. Do not give in to a theology of defeat. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city of the Goyim. Seek the peace and prosperity of this idolatrous city at which the center is a ziggurat to which I've calibrated you into exile. Pray to the Lord. If you prosper, it prospers. So what he's actually saying is give in to the blessing of wilderness. Why? Because we see this in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, we start to see what's happening. When the people are in the promised land, they are oppressing the aliens in their midst, despite Scripture telling them not to. They are not worshipping the one true God holy. They are worshipping idols. They are not producing justice and righteousness. They are producing injustice and immorality. But then, in the book of Daniel, we find the shock of a Jewish man in the belly of Babylon. And whereas the story of Judges is just like one king comes and he comprises and then it becomes chaotic and he becomes immoral and it becomes unjust and then violence happens. And then just when you think it's going to change again, it goes through that cycle again and again and again. Yet the book of Daniel, we are shocked by this guy who is right there in the court at the center of imperial power of the Goyim. And he is faithful. He doesn't practice an insurgency campaign where he has his like Jewish terrorist cell protecting his people and chucking Molotov cocktails at the Babylonian police. He is prepared to take the Christian option of martyrdom. Powerlessness. And he flourishes. He becomes devoted. The blessing of the wilderness creates a remnant. This is the story of Joshua. Who were the men? You're going into battle. I'm going to limit the troops you're going to take in. I'm just going to have the men who are prepared and looking left and right because it's better to have a hardened, faithful, devoted, white, hot remnant 
than a vast people of God who are compromised. We are in a time where we are moving towards having simply a remnant. And a remnant becomes a remnant because a culture around you, which is against you, everything that John Mark said, everything that Sarah said, the achievement culture, married with a hedonistic culture, comfort plus running around headless, non-direction, your phone, distraction, all of this stuff means that we are constantly in exile means that you're not going to turn up to church unless you want to be there, increasingly in Australia. And what that does is our churches may seem smaller, we may seem up against the wall, but it's actually not the secular story where this is the last act before the church disappears. What this actually is, is the wilderness part at the end of this cycle, and this is not the time to be faint of heart, this is the time to realize how God moves cyclically through history, and this is the time to build a remnant. When the remnant is built, built uh, well, let's just jump over the page to 29, the second half of, hey, sit around in exile and enjoy the coffee. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have made to you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. To people who feel under such intense cultural pressure, fragility and marginalization, then you will call on me and come and pray with me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, all of the Goyim, and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place in which I carried you to exile. That remnant, you can direct a line to the people you find in the temple. Elizabeth. This is the community that John the Baptist comes out of. That remnant in Israel who then faithfully pray for the Messiah to come. For God to come again, you need that remnant. And one of the biggest idols I want to name is the idol of public opinion. Where we just go, hey, get, and look, God bless the statisticians. I'm friends with the Barna guys. Um, I love... Yeah, McCrindle and all this research, it gives us this interesting pattern to where Australia is. But if 0.0001 percentage of Christians believe that Jesus is Lord, does it stop Jesus being Lord? If 99% of people believe that Jesus is Lord, sorry, that, is, is he still Lord? He's still Lord regardless of how many people on earth believe in him or not. And Walter Lippmann in the 1940s wrote a fascinating book about the idol of public opinion where basically we imagine the public as some sort of actual person. It's like people talk about you know, this stupid journalism these days like the internet went crazy over Katy Perry's latest video. Now the internet didn't go crazy. The internet is everyone on earth. The internet is ISIS. The internet is... Costco water. The internet is absolutely everything. It's so stupid, but we talk about public opinion as if it's something because we've killed 
the Vox Dei of God, the voice of God, and we've stopped it for the Vox Populi, the voice of the people, as if it's something that we must then bow to. It's irrelevant. Better to have 3% of Christians, a hardened remnant, that's a beginning point, than 80% of cultural Christians in Australia. And so that's where we are now. We're at this point. And when you get to a remnant, what happens is the wilderness strips everything bare. Everything is gone. And the remnant has to describe or encounter what is the vital truth. What is the one thing that it's going to center itself around now? John F. Kennedy, when he became president, went through an experience which fundamentally changed him and his presidency. He went in wanting to do all this different social good, really wanted to do stuff about the civil rights movement and all different stuff. People forget now, it sounds quite strange, but Robert Kennedy, uh, sorry, John F. Kennedy was an ethnic minority who'd never been president before. He was Irish Catholic. So they were like, well, that was a big thing. People said he would never become president because an Irish Catholic could never become president. So it was all about the Irish Catholics and this stuff. And so there's all this, like, what it's going to be like before he becomes the leader. When you become the leader, you get basically what is called the talk about the football. The football is their code language nickname for the nuclear codes. And if you see the president behind the president... There is someone, a military guy, who carries this bag, and that's the codes to go to full nuclear war. Which is terrifying, particularly that Donald Trump has that behind like he's, he's tweeting like crazy stuff, and then behind him there's another device which will blow up the entire world. But anyway, you get this briefing where you go in and you sit down, and the military guys basically game out what nuclear war looks like. John F. Kennedy comes out of that meeting ashen white. His brother Robert Kennedy was the Attorney General. These are young guys, like they're not old. Young president. All this idealism. John F. Kennedy is sat and walked through what the absolute destruction of the human race looks like and that it is close in the middle of a cold war with the Soviet Union, China, Western, NATO forces pointing nuclear weapons at each other's cities. He looks at that his leadership directly touches on the possibility extermination of the human story. This then becomes the vital truth for him. His presidency was so much about not what he thought was going to be coming in. He then decides to enter into diplomacy to actually stop nuclear holocaust happening. This is his vital truth as a leader. It's not what he thought, but we're sitting in the seat of leadership. The leader is then forced. What is the one thing that this is vitally about? And there's this really interesting moment where the world comes close to nuclear war, very close with the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the Soviet Union put missiles in Cuba, just off the American coast, in response to some missiles in, in nearer to the Soviet Union. I won't go into the whole history of that. But for a couple of days, the world is edging close to nuclear war. And there's this bit in a movie about 
that crisis called 12 Days. And Robert Kennedy's sitting there, and Joe Case Kennedy there, sitting there, and their vital truth is to not let humanity be absolutely destroyed. And they've got these hawkish generals going, let's just hit Cuba. We can do this. Let's go now. Make a decision. Go now. We have to bomb. There is nuclear weapons of our coast. Bomb them now. JFK wants to go to diplomacy. He doesn't want to escalate. So he's fighting against these hawks. And in the movie, there's this intense pressure on them where they've got the advisors on both sides talking to them. And Robert Kennedy, his, his two brothers, really, we'd almost call them young adults now, just, just entering into middle age have a moment to themselves. And Robert says to John, who do we talk to? We need to get, um, this is me paraphrasing, we need to get wisdom on this. Who do we talk to? How do we know the way forward? What's the precedent? Who are the old men that we go and hear and, and who've been through this before? And John F. Kennedy says to Robert, this has never happened before. We are now the old men. And so, the people who then go through this stage of being a remnant, understanding the vital truth, which is boiled down not to this deconstructive program of this or reacting to that, all the past or being defined in this reactive sense, move into a proactive sense of saying, this is not about us, but God. This is not about hey, I'm doing this mix-up of missional with a bit of emerging or a bit of neuroformed plus this plus that or a bit of liturgical. And it's just like spiritual, red-hot faith where it's about Jesus and his kingship over us and we bow down to him and then everything else is secondary and we work it out from there. Not defining against something where this thing like a magnetic planet draws you into its orbit that's always defining you. So many times in my ministry career, I realized that I was defining against something that had gone before or was happening somewhere else that I didn't like somewhere, that had happened 20 years ago, that was happening in Texas somewhere that actually had very little to do with me. That was not God. There was actually a a, a force of magnetism that was throwing me off. So the vital truth then realizes that there are no old men because, just as John Mark said, the call to discipleship is always there, but the question of how do we do this in this time? When it comes to doing discipleship in the post-iPhone 2007 time, in the critical theory, in universities, shaping people time, in a time of distraction, in a time of globalization, in a time where you've got probably got every, every, almost every ethnicity within a 20-minute drive of you, and how to do that where you've got conservative Muslims, liberal Muslims, Buddhists, New Ages, atheists, agnostics, lapsed Jews, consumers, all these people, and that's just in your small group. <laughs> Who are the old men? You are the old men and old women. And what I mean by that is you are the people who then go, we build again. We start a new generation. I have to take a kind of proactivity and understand that that call is on me at this moment. This is that understanding that I look at this own church now. If it's not going to be some of us in this room, who the heck is it going to be? Some of you 
are caught up. I'm just going to divide you into two here. There are some of you who are real preparers, and you may be in your older years, and you were just praying for God to do something again in this country. Because you remember, maybe as a kid, meeting people who were so alive with God, and it's seeing God do something, and you want to see God do something again, and you're waiting for a new generation to arise. Some of you who are younger leaders, and I particularly want to speak to you if you're younger, have grown up in the framework that John Mark just described who are living out the paradigm that Sarah also just described of running from this to that and I'm like, I'm busy but I'm hardly doing anything, I'm exhausted. And you're thinking that someone else is going to do it. And maybe actually this moment is God saying, mate, no, no, what if it's you? I'm not saying to do the whole thing. I'm not talking some messianic complex here. I'm saying, what if God actually wants you to stop looking at an answer that's somewhere on Instagram, somewhere overseas, somewhere in another place, somewhere at that magical other church, somewhere in that magical other book, somewhere in that magical other stream, somewhere in that magical other podcast. What if God wants you to get with your scripture, get up early and pray and say, God, how do I do this where I am? How do I rebuild how do I start again? And maybe, like me, I can, I can get to this point where I can go, I've been through that, I did that, that didn't work, this didn't happen, I deconstructed that, and seriously, I don't want to be like that. And what if at that point, God says, I still want you to do this. What if your heart has been broken in ministry and you've tried stuff and you tried to plant a place and it didn't work or you left there and that broke down in relational fall apart there and you feel like you've done it but God's like, okay, this time it's going to be fully about me because everything else is burnt down and now it's just about Jesus and me. So put down all of your ideas, all of your reactivity and just sit because I actually want to talk to you. And Stuart Piggin, in his book on how God moves at different times in history, gives this really beautiful um, uh, analogy of that God, and there's a bit of an eagle theme, I'll just carry on from Sarah, that it's like a nest, and the people of God are a nest, and God's Spirit is always swooping in the sky looking for places to inhabit. And so his spirit swoops down wanting to move in times and places and he's looking, is there a resting place for him to sit and be and move again? But for him to move, the nest has to be empty. The nest can't be filled with flesh. The nest can't be filled with reactivity. The nest can't be filled with, 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 with self-promotion. It can't be filled with pride. It has to be filled with emptiness. An open heart to God. I mentioned in my first talk about the amount of Iranians all across the Western world, not just the Western world, Canada, Scandinavia, Malaysia, Australia, New Zealand, coming to faith. In the last 10 years, more Iranians have come to faith than in the last 10 centuries. Why? Because it's the Iranian diaspora, whose country was actually seen as one of the most more modern Islamic countries 
in the 1970s. There's amazing pictures in the 1970s of women walking around Tehran in like, so just skirts and heads not covered. The country then goes through this strange revolution, which is a combination of sort of leftist thought and revolutionary thought with Islamic fundamentalism, which then defines so much of the war on terror. And so they, they leave their country. They don't recognize their country. They don't even recognize the Islam that they grew up with. And they find themselves families scattered across the world. Strangers in a strange land. Lost their inheritance. Some who have degrees in science and engineering working in 7-Eleven stores or wherever. Humble. Nothing in the nest. And that's why God is nesting amongst people like the Iranians or the Karen people or the Chin people or the Hmong people. These people across our suburbs who have lost stuff, Sudanese people, Dinka people, we see this story where God is resting with people because they have nothing. And so for us, the question then is for God to move again, we have to get out of the nest our flesh. The language of the New Testament, where there's this battle in us between flesh and spirit, which is not about your body and the ethereal supernatural world, but a part about the parts of you which wants to rebel against God versus the parts of you which wants to go with God. And so what happens is, the next stage then is, as God begins a remnant, the vital truth is, you have to learn to die to self. For me, I'm going to be really honest for one second, it got to the point where I don't think I had much pride left in me. I had been involved in a couple of church plants which had failed. I was part of a church which was failing spectacularly. I'd been part of a church where there had been, a, at the top, a moral fall, which was horrible. Then a second church which had failed. All kinds of craziness going on. For me, the dying to self wasn't, I'm actually, I think I'm awesome. The dying to self was, just let me hide. God, God just, just get me to go and just go to that little group over there, just doing that small thing. Just serve a few people. Just give me something really small. Now some of you, he might actually be calling you to that. But my dying to self was actually a dying to die to the fact that I actually want to use you. Die to the fact that what if I really want to do something again? Die to your stronghold which I believe hovers over the Australian church. And let me just draw this real quick. I'm just going to name something here. I think we have these streams in the Australian church. That you've got people like, let's call them the Pentecostals out here. And they're growing. They're growing fast. There are all kinds of things going on. There's stuff happening there. They're growing. And yeah, Amazing growth. You've got other groups here, like the Sydney Anglicans. Again, growing, stuff happening. 
But what's interesting is that these are not the dominant parts of the Australian church. The parts of the Australian church is actually, let's just call this this sort of evangelic-y, charismatic-y a bit, Baptist-y, maybe Church of Christ-y, Lutheran-y, sort of evangelical, Anglican, but not Sydney Anglican. This sort of like, yeah, community church, we're a bit brethren, but not exclusive brethren. We're sort of like just in the middle, normal churches. And we're actually the dominant group. But we haven't got any good news stories that we can super point at. We are the result of that kinetic movement that God did. What grew out of 1901 in Melbourne, in Australia, around Australia, actually grew this thing here. And we look left. Oh, should we become more like that? I don't know. I like some of it, but the smoke machines. Is there. <laughs> I like some of this, but yeah, some of it, I just... Yeah. And these guys... Lots of people here critique, but we're not them. So we're critiquing something else. It's not us. And it's easy to critique something that's not you. And God's doing wonderful things. And my thing is just God bless them. They're bringing people to faith. Do your thing. These guys, it's not my tribe, but God bless you. Do your thing. God is using you. If God can use Nebuchadnezzar, absolutely. Goodness me. <laughs> I didn't mean it in that way. That sounded worse than what I meant it. But what I'm saying is... What I meant was that if he can even use that, he's going to use Christians of other stripes. That's what I was saying. That was not, I did not mean that as a criticism. I want to criticize us. Now, this is different to America. This is big in America and there's success stories here. This is totally bought into a theology of defeat. A theology of protect our skin. A theology of, uh, I don't want to. A theology of defining against. A theology not of victory. A theology of not of trying, but of self-protection and defeat. And so we look at American models and we go, we don't want to be like them when actually maybe we're actually way over here and we actually need to be more proactive. And so I believe that God is wanting to do things again here. Let's not look left or right. Let's look what's happening here. And Simon Sinek, who John Mark referenced before, there's a bit where he gives a talk about millennials. And he says, millennials will end up in two places today. They'll either be like, I'm falling apart or he said, at best, it's like, we're surviving. The idol of this is like, yeah, it's okay, we're surviving. We're still around. I bump into guys in this place, how are you going? It's hard, but we're still here. I do not see Matthew 28 in that. That is the mythology of oppression of the story of secularism in Australia. I love this space. I love the evangelicalism that comes out of the British tradition, which is like open to culture and Wilberforce and Wesley, but then open to the spirit, which is interacting with culture, which holds orthodoxy, but then is conversant with culture. There is this incredible heritage in that space, 
That is like exactly what is needed now at a time when Christianity is going to the extremes. This middle space is this place where we again discover what John Stott called a balanced Christianity. Where faith is alive and can move and do something. So we have to... This is my problem. I can't... Oh, Sarah's. Let's... <laughs> I was like, we have to measure success. <laughs> I think we have to die to our own restricted strongholds and theologies of defeat and actually again regain courage. Not courage through striving, not courage through busyness, but the courage that emerges from the rest that Sarah just spoke about. A courage which comes from God, a faith that comes from God. Courage, faith, even when there is doubt. Even when the past has been stories of being burnt that does not have to define the future. And so we who have that heritage find ourselves in this place where you have a new generation who only know extremes. They don't know what balanced looks like. They don't know what that middle space looks like. They do not know what that great heritage of God coming and changing cultures in this redemptive, wonderful way looks like. So, we need leaders who die to self, decide to be proactive, and then begin to create apprentices of Jesus. I can't even write, you know what I mean. That's... People who then will get around them and that the white hot faith in the leader then begins to rub off onto those people. And you start to, as you got in Babylon, Babylon would become this place, bizarrely, the Babylonian Talmud was written, it became this hot spot of Jewish spirituality. Iraq would then become a center of Christian heritage following on from that. Many of the Jews who were in Iraq then became Christians to the point where Mosul had uninterrupted Christian worship for over a thousand years until the Islamic State took it over. I think it was in 2016. 15, 16. And so God is now in this reconstituting, rebuilding space, putting things back together, creating sparks, creating little fires, allowing those little shoots to grow up. And this creates a core. This creates a different place. But for that to happen, we have to again take up the mantle of being leaders who go deep with Jesus. I would love to pray. And I'd love to pray for you to end today. I would really love to pray specifically. So I'm just going to pray into just some things I feel like God wants to say. So Father, I want to pray and thank you for the giant's shoulders that we stand on. I want to thank you, Father, for the Christian's in this country have gone a different path. I want to thank you for the wonderful stories of Richard Johnson, the first chaplain to this country who preached your word. 
who then went and met with the indigenous people of this nation, showing a different way than what would be the experience of so many others coming afterwards. I want to thank you, Father, for the people who came out to the other side of the world, literally to Mars, it felt, would have felt like, but who followed you deeply and closely. I want to thank you for Australians as this, apart from our indigenous population, as this collection of migrants who came from all over the world, bringing faith, discovering faith here, speaking it in their migrant tongues and then coming and getting out of those different communities and creating what is the church in Australia. I want to thank you, Father, for the different points of growth. I want to thank you for the prayers that happened in the 19th century. I want to thank you for the revivals that happened in the beginning of the 20th century. I want to thank you for, Father, what happened after World War II, the untold story of so many diggers who came home from the war and reconnected with Jesus. Billy, Billy Graham holding the record at all our stadiums in a sports-mad country. So I want to thank you, Father, for what's gone before, the faithful souls whose vapors we allow our engines to run on. But I also want to acknowledge, Jesus, that we're coming to the end of a cycle. I want to acknowledge, Jesus, that we're at a time where because of what we see and we even believe the story of secularism ourselves when the evidence goes against it, So I want to pray, Jesus, that you'll forgive us for the fear. I want to pray, Jesus, you'll forgive us for seeing wilderness or being small, being fragile, as not a blessing. So we accept, Jesus, that we're in a wilderness. We accept we're in exile. We want to put down our roots here. We want to plant gardens. We want to build houses in this time and place because we want to learn from Exile, because Father, you are creating a remnant. So Jesus Christ, I pray in Australia that you will create a remnant. I want to thank you, Father. We have people here from Queensland. I pray, Father, you create a remnant in Queensland. I want to thank you, Father, that we've got people here from Tasmania. I pray that you create a remnant in Tasmania. Jesus, I want to thank you, Father, that we have people here from Melbourne. Create a remnant in the city. Create a remnant Father who will again fall with love in you despite what's gone before. Do a new thing. Create a new vision. Give us hope. Give us excitement. Give us passion. I want to pray particularly for leaders in this room whose hearts feel heavy, who perhaps have come through three years, ten years, thirty years of deconstruction. For those of you who, in this room, Father, who feel that they've just been in, a, in the role of a manager. Make us fall in love with you again. Make you the center of everything we do. Make you, Father, the vital truth for us. And so whatever you need to do, Father, if people right now need to give up some of that past pain, where they need to give up some of that doubt, where they need to give up that reactive, passive posture, which is from like a dog once bitten, twice shy. And I pray, Father, we can put everything down but you. And I pray in that, that, that absence and quiet of the desert, of the wilderness, just as you were spoken to by your Father in the wilderness before your ministry, may the Spirit come and speak to us again. I want to acknowledge that in the wilderness that the enemy comes to tempt and I'll pray against his works in Jesus' name right now. 
I want to pray against doubt that's been sown by the enemy. I want to pray against fear. I want to pray against temptation. Instead, may we only hear your voice in the quiet of the desert. And so, Father, I want to pray that you'll begin to deposit dreams. I want to pray, Father, that those who are preparers will know how to prepare to pray for a next generation, to cry out to you. I want to pray, Jesus, for the pioneers to start doing and preparing for what pioneer work is. I want to thank you for the pioneering work that's already beginning. And so, Jesus, as we come to the end of this time of leaders, may we be leaders who understand what time it is and what you're calling us to be. And may, Father, from this Future generations go ahead. A blessing. I love the story, Father, that Sarah shared. of The impact of her grandparents. May such stories be told about us when we're dead and buried in the ground and your kingdom goes forth. So Jesus, come and pour your spirit on this parched land. In your name, amen.